kind of mid-90s, we got to the point where we could catch our breath, and we, you know, hadn't really been involved with the homebrew community very much. And all the really interesting, cutting-edge things come out of that community. Brewers are doing their own R&D all the time, and we do, but really it's those guys, that, that, that community, that really pushes the, the envelope. Because they're passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, oh, they you know, are. and they really the, the last thing that they have to worry about is selling a beer at the end right. of the day. So they're doing just, you know, really interesting things. From the studios of Kink Radio, it's the Portland 50, a podcast series about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The Portland 50 series is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company. The legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. I'm your host, Peggy LaPointe. Today, I talk with Kurt and Rob Widmer, founders of Widmer Brothers Brewing and creators of the first American-style Hefeweizen. We were homebrewers, and we had different motivations. I'd lived in uh, Germany in the mid-70s, and and we had always liked beer, and and when I was in Germany, I kind of saw how integrated into almost everything in Germany beer is (laughs) in a very positive way. And plus, I liked the beers that that I I was drinking over there. So when I came back, it's like maybe I can brew some of the beers that I was drinking over there. And, and, but it was also just a fun hobby. Mm-hmm. And when I started, well, when we started, we didn't have aspirations to take it beyond the hobby stage. I don't, I don't, I didn't. Yeah, no. Our, our um, uncle Walter, old Swiss guy, yeah. he was a home brewer. And, and growing up when we would have family dinners over there, um, that's where I was introduced to home brew. And that's, you know, but like Kurt said, there was no aspiration to take it any further than I thought it was kind of a cool thing that he was doing. And um, but it was years later that I had the opportunity to to homebrew with a guy, and then you know one thing led to another. And yeah, it's it's a very simple process, and you don't you know you can do it with a spaghetti pot and you know your stove. And to do it well, to do it well, <laughs> that's a whole. It t- takes thing. a little bit more, but but not a lot. It was '84 when you quit your day jobs. Correct. The five-year span, what went on there that you thought this could really be something? We actually never brewed, homebrewed together. Mm. Um, Rob was in Big Sky in Seattle, and, and I was here in Portland, but uh, we both talked about it, and, and it, was, it was a fun hobby. And it was, uh, I mean, the story from, from my standpoint of, of Widmer Brothers is basically a hobby that went out of control. You know? But uh, over that five-year span, it seemed to me, maybe it was just from my perspective, but it seemed to me that there was a growing interest in beer in Portland. Mm-hmm. And I would point to uh, more interest in, in imports at that point, at that date. So something beyond what the major domestics were doing. And, and so there was kind of an evolution of, uh, this is a fun hobby. And then, you know, my wife saying, you know, I'm tired of you ruining my kitchen. She didn't ever say that. No, she was always supportive. I don't know, from Rob's perspective, but it was just at, at some point, you know, the fourth or fifth year of homebrewing, it was like, I wonder if we could take this to the next level, which was very simple, you know, small-scale mm-hmm. operation, commercial. Do you think the interest in imports was mostly a Portland thing, or do you know if it was happening in other areas of the country? It was happening in other parts of the country, but two of the things, when I did my very rudimentary uh, <laughs> primitive research uh, before we started, one was that, Oregon uh, was one of the top, from a percentage of beer sales, 
states in the country, the percentage of beer that was draft, and the industry considered draft beer drinkers more sophisticated than just people that drink out of the bottle. And, and Oregon was one of the, the top. And the other thing was that, that uh, and this is in the, in the 70s, but that Oregon was a uh, percentage of sales that was import was mm-hmm. also one of the highest in the one country, highest. which is really surprising because on the East Coast, they had that tradition of bringing over European beers. But Right. Um, so um, we took two of those things as, as kind of a very encouraging. We intended to be draft only, so that was that was a, a big plus for us. So It was a number of years before you started bottling it. It was. Yeah, it yeah. was. We were one of the last. Ten, <laughs> ten years, yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah. And the first two beers uh, that you were brewing was an <laughs> alt beer mm-hmm. and a Weizen beer. Mm-hmm. So the inspiration for the alt was, um, it's basically a German ale, but it, it gets cold lagered. So it's, it has, it's kind of a hybrid. Mm-hmm. It's cold lagered like a, like a uh, Pilsner. Or anyhow, uh, our mother's family was from Dusseldorf, and alt beer is the king of beers in Dusseldorf. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, that was, there was kind of a natural connection there. So. Right. And then the story behind uh, Hefeweizen is <laughs> pretty cool. It is cool. I mean, uh, we would love to say it was part of a meticulous plan, you know, <laughs> well thought out. But uh, the alt beer was way too bitter for Portland in yeah. 1985. Still. <laughs> it still is. <laughs> the pundits say that it's the best beer that we do. I mean, consistently, it's the best beer that we do. It's kind of Brewer's favorite. Rob's my favorite, you know, but... Uh, it never sold very well, but fortunately, we had a, a second recipe waiting in the wings, uh, and that was a filtered wheat beer. Weizen means wheat in German. At that time in Portland, in the U.S., we felt that the beer should look like what people were accustomed to. Mm-hmm. So clear, pale, and uh, mo- moderately carbonated. But we had a, a, a good friend, a good account, uh, Carl Simpson at the Dublin Pub, Carl and Kate. And uh, he had the, the alt beer on tap and uh, lied to us and said it was one of his best sellers. And he said, could, could you know, and then he had the Weizen beer on tap and that, that sold very well. And then he asked, could we get him a third beer? And with our equipment, it really was not possible to do a third beer. And so I don't know whether to credit Rob or myself or both of us, but, but we, we just thought about uh, putting the, the Weizen in a keg without running it through the filter first. And <laughs> it looked like, what it looked like, right. you know, and we were very concerned. This was very early days, and, and what would people think? So we didn't really put our name on it. We didn't have, have any backup materials for it. It was only supposed to be for him, mm-hmm. and we told him what we did and what we did, you know, you know and that it was not unsafe, you know. We, <laughs> it was just because of the, the appearance, and, and he embraced it totally. He was one of the first people in town to have, the, have those big 23-ounce whites and beer glasses. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I think he might have been the first. Mm-hmm. And so, and we said, put a lemon on the, on the rim. And uh, he, he thought that was the neatest thing. So uh, you'd have staff load up a tray, whether they had an order for them or not, and just walk through the room. And that's one of the cool things about Portland that, that might be unique to Portland. People would look at that and say, what is that? let me try that. Yeah. You know, and in other parts of the country, they'd go, oh, my God, there's something seriously wrong here. Get that away from me. And in Portland, it was like, let me try that. Unfortunately, they liked it, you know. It's kind of funny now. Hazy beers are... are kind of the rage right and and brewers in the northeast are kind of claiming that they've invented this this <laughs> kind of thing it's like wait a minute you know, we've been doing that for 30 years yeah yeah so it I, I think you know if we can if i can brag on us a little bit i think we made the world safe in the u.s for for unfiltered beers you know i mean we, we are we're out in front of that whole era of 
overprocessed foods and things like that. Right. You know, this was one one step that we don't do. <laughs> You know, and people were like, wow, that must be even more natural, you know. And so uh, we were the experiments. Yeah. yeah. It was interesting. I mean, when we started, though, um, people expected beer to be clear. Mm-hmm. And and we were trying to make our beer clear, but our filter was not, <laughs> the filter we had was a piece of junk. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. And so it would be hazy, and, and people thought that meant the beer was bad. I mean, we'd, people would call and say, something's wrong with your beer. And we'd quiz them a little bit, and they wouldn't even taste it. Mm. And so we were, you know, the prospect of putting out Hefe that looks like it does was kind of scary to us. So, But it was so hazy. And then, like Kurt said, Carl Simpson and Kate at the Dublin Pub explained to people that it was supposed to be that way. Yeah. And, but that, that was the cool thing, was that it shocked people. Like like Kurt said, I, I was in there one, one Friday night, and Carl said, watch this, and he had, you know, this, this waitress walk around the room with these glasses and I could see people's they were in conversation and the conversation would stop and people I could see them gesturing and like by midnight everybody in the room was drinking it oh, it was awesome. it was unreal it was so such a cool era I mean uh, I mean if you think about it nobody had seen a glass like that right pint glasses were just becoming it used to be when, when I started drinking beer and you ordered a beer you got it you know and right, the small mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah, and and pint glasses were becoming kind of cool mm-hmm. schooners, mm-hmm. and uh, and then but nobody had ever seen, you know, the the traditional Weizen beer glass, the twenty three ounce Pilsner glass. I mean, they'd seen them, but uh, and then no, nobody had ever seen a beer that looked like that, you know, and, and with a lemon wedge in. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was, and and you know, that's so that's one of the things that we found out about Portland as we spread out geographically was. People were so receptive to something new. I mean, uh, they didn't have to see it on TV advertised or, you know, it, it was just, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, tr- you know, and when we would offer a free sample, nobody would turn us down. But no. We, oh, there's some parts in the U.S. <laughs> really? We would offer people a free sample and they're like, no, I'm not interested. And it's like, you're not interested in a free sample. You've got a beer in front of you. Right. You're not interested in just a taste, you just know. tasting it. Nope, not interested. Not as adventurous. Well. And I tell you, that is when you're a little start fledgling company and you don't right. have any money for marketing or something like that and you can't even get people to sample a free sample, thank God we started in Portland. With, exactly. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Disheartening. Well, I think there is something about people who move to Portland or are sure. from mm-hmm. Portland. Absolutely. There's the adventure part. Of yeah. it. There is. There yeah. is. Absolutely. And especially in the 80s and early 90s when Portland wasn't Portland. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're natives. It's always been Portland. <laughs> I'm om- I'm almost a native. 89, 89. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're pretty close. I'm pretty mm-hmm. close. Yeah. So then you started bottling. Were you just bottling the Hefeweizen no. then? You were bottling all three? Mm, or oh, did you have more question. at this point? Yeah, we, we, we must have. I think we had four. 96. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So because we don't pasteurize we had to wait for the technology of bottling equipment to kind of catch up to our needs so that we could bottle sanitary mm-hmm. um, and not have to pasteurize. So we, the technology caught up to our needs and also we could finally afford it. <laughs> 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 but any, So anyhow, yeah, it was 96 when we started. So we were 10 years that we were draft only. We were the largest draft only brewery in the Western Hemisphere. <laughs> <laughs> True. Because you had to be. And so you had to stay pretty localized, right? Could you, could we you ship were, that we out? Were, we, we were sending, well, yeah, mostly, yeah. I mean, our, our market was Portland, you yeah. know, and then the Oregon and then the Northwest. I mean, the late 80s, early 90s, Haifa was just, it was crazy. And and 
part of the, you know, we wanted to have a pub earlier than we did. We wanted to do other things, but we were so busy yeah. mm-hmm. just trying to keep up with the demand. And I mean, for our, our sales guys, everybody did everything. But I remember we just had a list by the phone. Pubs would call us. You know, this is pre-computer. <laughs> so we would say, ah, you know, you are 30th you know, on the list and, and we'll get you beer just as soon as we possibly can. And um, it was just a crazy time. It was all we could do. To keep so, up. Uh, just to keep yeah. up with yeah. Ava. Were you traveling back and forth to Germany no. to tour well, anything? Or? I toured the breweries around Freiburg, which is southwest Germany, and through family, uh, I went up to Dusseldorf, mm-hmm. spent some time with a what I consider the premier Altbier brewery there in Dusseldorf, and he gave us permission to use his yeast, wow. which was kind of critical going forward. Um, but that was it. It was a tour that lasted about three weeks and then Rob and I were had been putting the brew together and ready to fire it up as soon as the yeast arrived which was interesting in itself two yeast strains arrived in little pint aluminum screw top containers sealed mm-hmm. and it's it said something like bio live and customs freaked out it was what the I mean this is in the early I mean it was before terrorism right but they were like uh, they called and said your shipment has arrived and I said what is that and they said you need to come out here and explain to us what's going on in, in these in these containers. And it was like, uh, I said, yes, it's yeast and it is alive. It's not been killed. And they were like, so what are we going to unleash if we open these up? And it was like, they're not going to come flying out. We're going to use it to produce beer. And they're like, I mean, I, I got to be sympathetic for these guys. Right. This is not something that happened to them every day. And it was very tenuous. They were like, uh, we're not sure that we can release this, you know, because from their perspective, you know, I was ready to unleash germs, like germs, right? Measles, <laughs> you know. I mean, it, and uh, the documentation came from Weinstefen, which they had never heard of. It, it went back and forth for a while. I think I don't even remember how I finally convinced them, but it was tenuous there for a while whether they were going to let us have our yeast. Rob and I went through a, just an incredibly steep learning curve in the early days. The local uh, OLCC people were being very cooperative and very supportive. And so were the ATF guys nationally. But they all said, guys, we have experience closing breweries. I mean, if you think about it, mm-hmm. we have no experience opening breweries. So we'll work with you on this, you know, but we're going through a learning curve too. And it was, <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, but, but people were being very supportive. It wasn't like anyone said, okay, we're not going to do this. Right. They just uh, had no idea what it was. They had no idea. They were finding out. I mean, we would get documentation like the, this was before the, Inter- interweb. <laughs> we would get, you know, go to the library and get documentation. And I'd say, well, what about this item? You know, and they'd say, oh, hadn't considered that before, you know. And I was like, so, anyhow, it was the good news was that they, they wanted it to happen. They were sorting it out with us at the same time. It's funny that, so the, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the, the agency that regulated us, they had these documents. You had to keep track of, I assumed, every drop <laughs> of beer. And these were the documents were set up for these huge breweries that that brewed you know tens of thousands of barrels, <laughs> and so when we would draw samples, I would pour the samples into a like a five gallon bucket, and at the end of the day, use a measuring cup, oh, and I would account for every drop, and so on these forms, I would be putting in figures like point zero 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 five or something, and. There were, there were no whole numbers. It was all just these. <laughs> and I remember at some one point, 
I would send these things out and they just disappear into the you know ether. But but years and years later, someone did say they would get these forms and they go, "What is going on here?" <laughs> like they would round to the nearest, maybe not even barrel, which right. is thirty-one gallons, and I was measuring. <laughs> I mean, it, it was I mean, super cautious. We were super. Hey, cautious. you know, it was the Fed. I right. was it, afraid they'd kick our door it, down. It paid off in the end because I mean, Rob, like Rob, literally was accounting for every drop, and. Federal and state tax was based on your volume. And and so they didn't want any beer going out the door that didn't, wasn't taxed. Right. You know, it's self-reporting. But they would come down and, and uh, they would they could verify that by, you know, looking at your how much grain you used. In theory, this is how much beer you should be able to produce mm-hmm. on that. And so they, they would look and, and they'd say, God, yeah, your record keeping is, is meticulous, you know. <laughs> and uh, But it's like... <laughs> <laughs> to Rob's point, we've not seen anybody measured down to the microscopic <laughs> level. You know? But but they, they accepted that we were being conscientious and very and honest. honest. Very honest. And, and that paid off at the end in that with, with all the agencies that regulated us, and it's a very regulated industry, mm-hmm. over the years they, they came to realize that the last thing that Rob and I wanted to do was cheat on our taxes, you right. know. And so they would, you know, there would be things that would occur and they'd, you know, for example, a bad batch of beer. Mm-hmm. And you just dump it down the drain, and you have to account for that. Right. And and they they took us at our word, you know. I mean, they didn't they didn't come in and say, oh no, we have to watch you destroy this or something like that, you know. And so it paid off that they we developed this trust, you know. So good. <laughs> <laughs> it was. I hope that somebody got a kick out of Rob's measurements at the end, though. <laughs> he was so diligent about it. Along the way, I mean, you really had nobody in the U.S. that was doing what you were doing that you could ask questions of. I mean, they're, they're the big breweries, but there, was there anyone around? There there were some. I mean, w- we developed a nice, nice relationship with the brewers at, at Blitz. Well, for example, the device to measure bitterness is a fairly sophisticated and expensive piece of equipment, mm-hmm. and we didn't have that. And so Rob and I just did an extrapolation of the hop bitterness as we got it from the lab. Mm-hmm. This is how bitter our beer is. And <laughs> we were only off by about 100%, but anyhow, we gave... <laughs> We gave samples um, to the Blitz guys, and they were so fascinated with what we were doing. I mean, they really were, mm-hmm. and and very supportive. And they, their marketing people, even said these guys are really good for beer because they're creating a, an awareness of beer that was missing. Yeah. But they they took the samples and, and put it in their lab and said, "Tell us what the bitterness is here." <laughs> the lab was like, "Where the." F, are you getting this? And are you kidding me? And, and we don't even really have a scale for this, you know? <laughs> we're like, well, so what would you guess at it? And it was like, we thought we were down around 40 IBUs, and it turned out it was 70 or something like That's that. <laughs> Anyhow, they got a kick out of that. <laughs> okay, so let's go on to the homebrew. So this okay. is 98 yeah. that you got involved with. Yeah, Oregon Brew Crew. There we go. Before Kurt and I got started, we were members of the brew crew. It was the back around 80. And then once we got the brewery going, we were busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, you talked about trips to Germany and stuff. We didn't really, I mean, I was thinking about that, but it was a good thing that we were young because it was really long days and seven days a week. I mean, nobody, the beer didn't take a holiday ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but kind of mid-90s, we got to the point where we could catch our breath and we, you know, hadn't really been involved with the homebrew community very much. And all the really interesting, cutting-edge things come out of that community. Brewers are doing their own R&D all the time, and mm-hmm. we do. But really, it's those guys, that, that, that community, that really pushes the, the envelope. 
Because they're passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're oh, they you know, are. and they the, really are. the last thing that they have to worry about is selling a beer at the right. end of the day. So they're doing just you know really interesting things. Mm-hmm. So now when you homebrew, you can go to the homebrew supply house and get all the ingredients you need, including yeast mm-hmm. made for homebrewing. And back then that was not really available. And so to have a quantity of yeast, we call it pitchable, or it's um, a quantity that you can put right in a homebrew. Mm-hmm. We always had tons of that. So we would get guys from the club calling and saying, hey, I'm going to brew on the weekend. Can I come by and get some yeast? And we'd say, sure. And then finally it was like, hey, you know, we wanted to see what our yeast was capable of. So we would say, hey, you know, why don't you bring, you know, we want a bottle of, of the beer that results from this. And some of the beer was really good. And, and I'm not really sure how it came together, but we were like, we need to do something here. There are these recipes that need to be brewed. So right. Collaborator oh, was born. And basically it's the members of the Oregon Brew Crew um, bring their recipe for five or 10 gallons in. Um, we've always had a, a, a 10 barrel brew house. Now we call it our innovation brewery. Mm-hmm. But they, they work with our guys to ramp their recipe up to a, a 10 barrel batch. And then that beer is sold just in the local area under the collaborator list. Have any of their ideas um, work their way into tons? Really, mm-hmm. tons. Uh, I mean, for us, um, okay. well, which introduced us to lactose and milk sugar and brewing, which mm-hmm. we use in, in other beers. Um, our first wit beer, our first sour beer, our first it's called Cascadian Dark. So the winner of this competition with the brew crew. Uh Gets to brew with our brewers, 10 barrels. Don't we contr- contribute the profits back to the club? So uh, uh, $4 a barrel goes back to the club, who in return send it to the uh, scholarship fund for brewers at Oregon State. So it's a really cool deal. It win, is win, cool. Win, win, win. It's like a pro-am uh, you know, for the home brewers. Uh, we've had um, maybe 50 of them since 98, men and women, and, and they've all, almost all said it was the most fun thing that they've ever done because it is like a, you know, like a pro-am. Yeah. You know, they, they get to be... A pro, and, and Kurt and I experienced this, and I think to a certain extent it still exists, but if you're a home brewer, even today, as sophisticated and as good as homebrew is, to your non-brewing friends, you're a hobbyist. But if right. the, the folks that go through this, they can take their, their friends into a pub and their beer is on tap, mm-hmm. and you know they've all said your friends look at you differently. <laughs> That's pretty cool. You know, so. How many, I mean, are there winners each time, or? So it, it's really, there are no rules, and it's yeah. really kind of, it's morphed over the years. But what we do now is every spring we get together, um, members of the brew crew submit their beers, mm-hmm. and we select three, two or three or four, and then we brew them in the next year. And do you have like a big announcement at the pub? You know, like a big showcase of well, it? Well, so when each beer is released? Yeah. So we do it kind of throughout the year. They're, okay. they're not all not at all. once. We've been last handful of years kind of introducing them at festivals mm-hmm. so the spring beer and wine fest the oregon brewers festival the holiday ale fest have been three festivals that have been really generous and giving the uh um, collaborator project kind of a spotlight at those those events you're listening to king's portland 50 series i'll continue my conversation with kurt and rob widmer in a moment but i wanted to thank our sponsor the portland 50 series is presented by jaguar land rover portland one company two iconic brands Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Now back to my conversation with Kurt and Rob Widmer, founders of Widmer Brothers Brewing. You guys are one of the founders of the Oregon Brewing Fest. Right. 
How did that come about? Was it? <laughs> so, <laughs> I, when was the first one? 88? I think this is going to be the 30. Yes, 88. 31st year. So, okay, so 88. So, we still were, I don't want to say struggling, but, but we recognized that, that nobody had any money for advertising. Or, mm-hmm. or, and so, what could we do to create greater awareness of craft beer? Back then we were a microbrewery, but uh, anyhow, then craft we became craft brewers. But anyhow, um, that wouldn't cost us very much. And so I think I give Art credit for coming up with the idea, Art Lawrence, but uh, one of the founders of Portland Brewing. But anyhow, um, so Art and Rob and I and uh, the Ponzi's at Bridgeport, the mm-hmm. founders of Bridgeport, got together and said, uh, and back then, I, I, I don't even remember, but I think we leased Waterfront Park. I mean, we identified that location. And I want to say it was like $100. To lease it. To lease the park for the weekend. And now, well, let me, say, let me tell you, it's... Not $100. It's many thousands of <laughs> times that now. But anyhow, uh, so, and we had no idea what to anticipate. It was Saturday and Sunday only. We got a refrigerated trailer down there that we borrowed from a wholesaler. And I think we were projecting that if we got like a thousand people over two days, that it, that we'd have to consider that a success. And we, uh, there was no fencing, no nothing. I, I convinced, I abused all of my friends and said, "Come down and and as volunteers and serve beer for you, you know." And at the end, I'll buy you a beer, you know. And it was for like noon to six o'clock, right. something like that. And so there were no doors to open, but there was this gigantic <laughs> crowd waiting, and it was so insane. It was it was a sunny, warm day. In July. In July. Right. And, and we picked that because I think my, my wife did some research, and that's, that's a weekend that's consistently good, most consistently good weather in Portland. So we picked that, and it was an open date on the park. Um, well, that was probably why it was so cheap, too, because we told them we were only going to get 1,000 people. Anyhow, I think at the end we figured that we got close to 8,000 people, but... Wow. All, it was sunny. We, we didn't have the, the truck under the trees like we do now. Right. All of our friends got sunburned. Oh, no. Instead of working like a couple hours, we made them work for like eight. And we ran out of beer like 10 times, you know. I mean, and Rob and I kept going back to the brewery, and finally we, <laughs> <laughs> it's like we don't have any more beer, you know. And so by Sunday, we were, we were <laughs> just completely out of beer. <laughs> so anyhow, it was obviously it exceeded. It was a success. It yeah. was a success, and, and it grew from there. I mean, it was... Uh, I, I really like the model that we laid out then and that there were other brewery festivals. Mm-hmm. Most of them showcased and were sponsored by big breweries, right. either import or, or domestic. But also they were competitive. And mm-hmm. the Oregon Brewers Festival has, has never been a competition. Right. Um, it's, it's, there's no prizes awarded to anybody for anything, you know. And, and uh, it was, uh, um, oh, and we bought the beer. Oh geez. For most for most of the festivals, it was expected that you would donate the beer because it's right. the showcase opportunity. We paid for it. Oh man. And so uh, and that was very unique, and especially for the little fledgling fledgling breweries in the Northwest like ourselves, they didn't have the financial capability to just say, "Here are five kegs," you know. Right. We said, five kegs, and here's the cash," you know. And, hmm. and so. Um, yeah, and in the early days, a lot of the brewers from outside the area used the money. You know, we would buy the beer. They used that money to, to come. Yeah, to pay for the <laughs> <You> travel <know>? <laughs> expenses. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and so uh, anyhow, it, it was a model that hadn't been tried before. Oh, and that's, we got the, um, 
as it grew larger, we my friends said, okay, you, you can only abuse us, you know, one or two years, and then you got to find new friends. So we went back to the brew crew and said, um, if you provide the volunteers for serving, we'll make this amount of dollars donation to the club. Hmm. And so, and towards the end, I guess it's still, we're not involved really anymore, but, I, you know, at the end they were supplying, you know, several hundred servers. I have friends who volunteer for the brew Several fest. hundred mm-hmm. servers, yeah. and I think all they get out of it is, is maybe a T-shirt. Yeah, and, and beer. Well, yeah, and beer. beer. <laughs> and, <Yeah>. beer. <laughs> and that's really all I think it it's, takes. And they don't abuse I, I think it's pretty fun. Yeah. I mean, if it's... Everybody and, has a good And the nice thing is a lot of the servers are really knowledgeable. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it evolved. I mean, just like everything in, for us in craft brewing, I mean, um, fabulous success, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> all the beer fests are pretty successful. They that are. are in Portland. They are. I mean, so, it, we're such a unique location. It's, it's interesting to me, um, kind of with our Germanic roots and, and Oktoberfest in, in Germany and the beer halls and things, there still really isn't a big, there's Mount Angel. Right. But I think there there's an opportunity there that to have a, a you know, there used to be one, uh, the Rhinelander folks, Horst Mager did one right. at Oaks Park that I thought was really, really good. I, never I think it was maybe too successful. Pretty the Neighborhood crowd. Association... I didn't like it very well. Mm. Yeah. But then Central Catholic High used to do one at Holiday Park, right by Lloyd Center. It was really nice. Mm-hmm. And uh, since then, there isn't really one big Oktoberfest. So you guys got a few months to get that going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, <laughs> um, I want to talk about something else that I didn't know about mm. that, of course, makes me want to buy more of your beer because mm. um, sustainability is a big passion of mine. But you guys do a lot with sustainability. We do. And that's something I was totally unaware of. So a couple of things that you guys have got going on. It's the CO2 recovery um, program. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And tell me about that, because I, I can read the words, but I don't necessarily understand. So so typically a brewery, when you're fermenting, mm-hmm. that you ferment CO2 and you vent that to atmosphere. But when you get to, to kind of our size, the piece of equipment that you can use to to capture that CO2 becomes kind of economical. And Sierra Nevada does it, but I think we're the second on the West Coast. Hmm. I think there's probably only a handful of craft brewers that are doing it, so we're very proud of it. And uh, we have a wonderful sustainability director, Julia Person. You know, greenhouse gases are front and center, again, with cap and trade. And, mm-hmm. and uh, we have this really cool device at the brewery we really like to show off. I don't know if anybody... Since the big breweries in the Northwest, yeah. Blitz, Rainier, right. Olympia, they're, they're all gone. Right. So I don't know that there's anybody that's doing CO2 capture. Sierra. In the Northwest. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't think so. so How hard is it? It's it's not that difficult, but it's expensive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the equipment. Right. And uh, we, we would look at it. Our engineers looked at it like five years ago, and they said, at our size, the payback would be like 15 years which doesn't make sense for most businesses. Right, right. So, but as we've grown, it, we got closer and closer, and, and the equipment has gotten not less expensive, but more efficient. I think I heard that we may even be able to sell it, yeah. our, our excess. I think we're, we're going to have is, more than we need, so is, we'll be able to supply Because we were burst. buying it. Right. Like Rob said, with what the equipment that we had, we were just venting it. We didn't have a way to, to capture it. Mm-hmm. And now we cap- capture it, but we were buying CO2 tanker would come in. Because you use it for the carbonization and packaging. No, yeah. not necessarily. No? Most of our carbonation is natural, but every now and then you have to, to add just a little bit to, to mm-hmm. f- hit very specific numbers. But also when you're moving from tank to tank, mm-hmm. you don't want to 
use air because that oxidizes the beer. Okay. So, so as, as you're taking beer out of a tank, for example, that space that you're creating in the tank, <laughs> you fill with carbon dioxide. It's not terribly expensive, but it's, it's part of the process. But it's, it's kind of fun that uh, you might want to talk to Julia. She's very knowledgeable, and, th- and she's dedicated to sustainability. Yeah, I have to brag her. on her a little bit when she came on board. You know, she really kind of did a deep dive on, on everything that we do, and it's been unreal, the things that she's uncovered. I think at one point, not too long ago, we were the most e- efficient user of water, maybe even in the United States. Yes, you uh, either are or were uh, yeah. a leader for the beer ratio because yeah. you're mm-hmm. using 3.77 gallons mm-hmm. yeah. mm-hmm. per gallon of beer. What's the average? Oh, I think it's close to five. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I'm guessing there's a lot of guys who don't even really measure, measure it. it. Well, yeah. on a small scale, that puts and us up against the big guys, you mm-hmm. know. And so, no, that's we're pretty proud of that. You know? uh, absolutely. And, and we didn't have to do that. I mean, honestly... Portland waters. Yeah, we're in a, we're in a great spot. It's right. Beautiful brewing water and right. pretty plentiful. And yeah, I mean, Bull Run. I mean, that's one of the things. If Rob and I, <laughs> we could claim to be really smart, but it was just coincidence that we landed in a place that has such wonderful brewing water. So, well, and those are the big things. I mean, some of the uh, smaller things that you're you're doing, or maybe it's Julia. It's all Julia. We'll give it. Well, we're we're good Portlanders. I mean, you, we, yeah. we we. Wanted to do those things, but a lot of them we just we didn't know what we didn't know, right? And it wasn't until Julia came on board that yeah, we. Um, She's really good. Yeah. Yeah, the reusable containers for employee meals, yep. which is fantastic. Yep. Uh, Thirteen thousand spent grains go to local farmers. Yep. That's ninety nine point five percent of your waste diverted. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah, huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brewing is pretty clean. Yeah. You know, most of our is is edible. You know, it's farm has farm use. So mm-hmm. it was just that last little bit of the stream that that Julia really has. Try to yeah. use pallets over and over. Uh, and you guys are founding members of the Oregon Brew Shed Alliance, which is pretty cool. Uh, brewers and conservationists all advocating for protection of Oregon's forests and watersheds. And the watersheds obviously make sense mm-hmm. because you're using the water. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so you guys can take credit for that or you can give it to Julia? We'll give it to uh, Julia. Julia. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, and while we're on the topic of sustainability, I have to give my wife credit for that. This is a big topic for her. And, mm-hmm. and she said, it's not necessarily sustainability from a resource management standpoint, but it must be sustainable from a financial standpoint. Right. You can't just do things because they're the right thing to do and have them lose money constantly. Yeah. And so um, Julie has been really good about identifying cost savings mm-hmm. that, that also create opportunities for su- sustainability too. So. Right. But also um, we uh, put a tank in that's devoted exclusively to spent yeast a small portion of, of beer that's remaining in the tank before we clean it. And that goes to this tank. It's I think it's a 15,000-gallon tank. And we have a farmer that comes in with his tanker and c- collects that because it's very nutritious for watering his livestock. Uh, it's oh. Yeast is very nu- nutritious. Uh, yeah, that's true. And, and so is beer, actually. And so uh, there's a small amount of alcohol, but he, he just dumps it in, a, in the open troughs and the Cows love it, and, and uh, it's, it's, you know, there's vitamins there, right. and, and minerals, and everything else. So I love that. Yeah. We didn't always have that capability, mm-hmm. but 10 years ago. Yeah, the brewers that aren't uh, kind of adjacent to, to rural areas where there are livestock, it's tough. You know, I, you know it's like in New York City, I think oh, right. they have to, oh, what you know, they pay. Ha- have it, la- you know, it's, oh, it's landfill. They pay to have it removed. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like. Uh, well, and then all that. Food, essentially. Nutrition goes to the landfill. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, and it's, 
actually, it's it's a revenue source for us now. Mm-hmm. I mean, a farmer comes in and, and he pays us half of what he would pay for feed. That's fantastic. And so he's happy to get it. Exactly. And we're happy to ha- that he reliably takes it away, you know, so uh, it's been good. Last year, I wish I had known about this, and I hope you're going to tell me that you're doing it again. You had the, um, across the street, the food cart pods. Yeah, 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 our beer garden, finally. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we are going to continue to do that. Uh, Good. They're experimenting with which which food cart to have there. Rob and I have always loved a beer garden. Yeah. You know, I mean, a nice warm evening, sitting in a beer garden with friends, drinking beer, you know, doesn't get much better than that. No, it really doesn't. (laughs) Yes, we're going to continue to do that. We've made some big changes to our pub, and that's really the the food now is that they're going to get kind of a rotation of food carts there so what's on the horizon new something seasonals? fun that we're doing with with hefeweizen mm-hmm. um but we're you know we've been around long enough we're of a size that for hop growers we're a good customer mm-hmm. we've got long you know 33 year relationships and so as new hop varieties come available actually even before they're available we have kind of agreements to get them so we can test brew with them because the, the the growers want to know what they've got too, and yeah. so um, we're going to do a series of beers. Kind of, we call it the Hefa X series, and so we're going to be featuring kind of these new varieties of hops. Um, same sort of recipe. Same recipe yeah. as Hefa, but but we tried this some years ago. I thought it was a brilliant idea. So did I. We had a we call it the Rotator IPA series, oh. and it was going to be the same thing that um, it was going to rotate three or four times a year. Same recipe, but with a different variety of hop. And we couldn't communicate it. People didn't get we that the hop people. rotated. We confused uh. people. Yeah, it was it was a mess. It was too bad because I really thought I like IPAs idea. were super popular. or It was just the start. Right. And everybody wanted the, the latest, greatest. Right. And we were kind of uniquely positioned to be able to do it. We, we realized. We just couldn't People would say, I, I love your rotator. And we'd say, Oh, really? Which one? And you get that panic look on the face. It's like, uh, 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 where did you have it? (laughs) So, I mean, literally, we were confusing people, and and that's not a good thing. No, it's not. It becomes negative pretty fast. Right. So, yeah. Do you source your hops all in Oregon? No. No, all over. Uh, Mostly mostly Oregon, Washington. Okay. But we're we're happy to take them. We do. We get a fair amount from New Zealand. Mm -hmm. My wife and I had the occasion to be there. And stopped off at Nelson, New Zealand. That's where their hop research sta- station is. And we met the farmer or the father of the Nelson hop, which is this professor down there, really nice guy. But uh, anyhow, to Rob's point, we we get we source our hops from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And New Zealand is especially interesting because um, it's been isolated from the mainland, whatever that would be. I guess Australia for so many years, million years that that they don't have the bugs oh. that that can infest hop fields, so they don't have to use any herbicides. Fantastic. Yeah, it's pretty cool. No no sucker control, no herbicides, and, and so the, the, they are the only source, in my opinion, in, in the world for, for uh, organic hops. Really? Truly organic hops. Other countries make that claim because they haven't, but these guys have, have never used herbicides. So. Wow. Yeah. Anyhow, it's... it's uh, the herbicides are, are all FDA approved, right. you know, and they are they are only applied way before harvest, so it's not anything that ever gets into the beer, even close to the beer. Anyhow, that it's it's fascinating. I mean, craft brewing has has caused a renaissance in hop growing mm-hmm. and research, 
I mean, it was an industry that was because the big breweries were using fewer and fewer and fewer hops and fewer and fewer varieties, and, and the acreage in, in uh, planted in hops was was spiraling down and down and down. We watched that over the years, and then when, when craft brewers came online in the U.S., and there's been kind of an emergence in other countries around mm-hmm. the world, but all of a sudden, I mean, just in Oregon alone, I think they added like 10% more acreage in, in hop production, which is big number. Yeah, big number. But all over the world where they grow hops, we can take credit for inspiring. And it's pretty neat to see because they grow up really mm-hmm. tall. Hops are beautiful. Yeah. yeah. They're wonderful. I mean, on the right conditions, they'll grow 12 to 18 inches a day. They do because we planted some. <laughs> and good. I was like, holy cow. Oh, good. Yeah. 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 Uh, they grew all the way up really quickly. Did you yeah, build yeah. a trellis for them? Or, or? We, we have a trellis over our porch. Oh, and perfect. so we had grown them oh, to provide some shade perfect. on one side. Yeah. 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 Perfect. They were, they were Sometimes crazy. people are surprised by how heavy they get. Yeah. <laughs> and sticky. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh. Yeah. Very sticky. So uh, uh, a friend of ours has a hop farm, uh, Goshi Farms. So she was growing low trellis mm. just on a, an experimental basis on her farm. And when she was done with that research, she said, anybody that wants to come down and, and pick, because her equipment was for the, the high trellis. Right. She didn't have equipment for low. So she said, if anyone wants to come down and, and pick off mm. the low trellis, you're welcome to as much as you want. So we got <laughs> 10 volunteers from the brewery to go down there, and they'll just slash you up. The hops are, are yes. cut you. I mean, we had gloves. Yes. But I mean, it was kind of hilarious because like 10 people and Four hours picked enough hops for a batch of beer, <laughs> barely. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you're entering your fourth decade, or into your fourth decade. Mm-hmm. What's uh, you got no plans? You just gonna see where it's gonna go? Well, I'm effectively retired. You're really? Yeah. Um, I still, you know, I'm obviously fascinated what's going on with Widmer Brothers, you know, and, and I kind of keep tabs. I, I still get the industry journals and stuff yeah. like that emailed. But uh, it's so pleasing to me that, that how Portland and Oregon and the Northwest has really led the way. Um, to Rob's point, there are other regions that, that claim different things, you know, but it's kind of revisionist history. I mean, we were there and, and kind of already mm-hmm. <laughs> years and years ago. But it's, it's uh, I, I think that, that uh, craft brewing has, in, in most of the U.S., some parts of the country it's still growing really rapidly, but most of the U.S., it's just integrated itself into, you know, the beer drinkers list of uh, beverages, you know, and, and I don't see that going away. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the total beer sales in the U S has been in decline for a while, but, uh, craft continues to grow. So, uh, and I, I, I don't know it goes to the, to the sky, but it, I, I don't see that. Uh, I don't see that slowing down. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. you're not retired yet. Are you? I, I, I joke that I retired 10 years ago. <laughs> I just haven't told anybody, but, but you know, it's, <laughs> you know, in the beer biz, how do you retire from the beer biz? You right. know? <laughs> but but um, I'm st- I still go in. But I'm um, for me, I'm just down to the the things that I really enjoy and where I think I bring value. Um, I think my palate is still good. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that we're proud of is we have a we've had a taste panel since ni- well, really forever, but we formalized it in 1990. Mm. But every batch of beer is, is submitted to really thousands of checkpoints along the way. But the final one has to be a quorum of panelists have to give thumbs up for every batch. Wow. So we meet Monday through Friday at 11 o'clock and taste the, you know, the production. So I did still do that. Good. And then I, I still enjoy, we call it team selling, mm-hmm. but it's basically going out and talking to pub owners and, 
and, and beer drinkers. And right. so I, I do that. Not as much as I did, you know, years and years <laughs> ago, years but, ago. But, but, uh, yeah. Well, good. It's well, a fun industry. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, really it's a fun is. business. I mean, we always, Rob and I aren't probably a fault is that we don't step back and, and take, you know, take things into perspective. But I mean, to be able to take a hobby and make it a job, pretty lucky. That's mm-hmm. very you lucky. Know, and we were in the right place at the right time. And, you know, I think probably it, it was detrimental to a lot of people because people would look at the, the two nuthead Widmer brothers and it's like, if they can do this, <laughs> anyone can do it. And, and I think that uh, we some people were misled a little bit by that, you know, but uh, it's it's been a heck of a lot of fun. And, I, you know, um, I don't know where else in the U.S. That, that there would be a better place or that there could have been a better place than right. Portland, Portland yeah. for, right. for, you know, I mean, um, from beer drinking perceptivity to having wonderful brewing water and the ingredients are all right here, the malt, the hops and everything. Um, I mean, I, I, I should mention too that, that our legislature mm-hmm. was was very supportive. I mean, uh, <laughs> they got tired of seeing Rob and I down there every session, you know, asking for this and that and this and that. But um, in, in the end, they came through. And, and, you know, one of the things that, that I think the legislators from that time should take pride in is that you know, we would say we're not asking for money. We're just asking for you to, to remove some of these restrictions. And if you do that, we will grow this business. And last time I looked, it was something like 8,000 jobs and several hundred million dollars. And, and uh, it's been and not asking for any money. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and uh, so um, I th- hopefully that there are legislators that pat themselves on the back and say, this is what we created, you know what I mean? Right. And, and, uh, and we did this without taxpayer funding, you right. know, and so they should be proud of that and we're proud of that too, you know, but we're very aware that there are a lot of states that legislatures, that legislators look look at this and, and say, oh, alcohol is evil, we can't possibly do anything to support, you know, breweries, you know, and, and that's a tough hurdle to, to overcome. Right. So, but in Oregon, we, we didn't have that, that issue. Uh, it was support all the way, so. There were enough people in Salem who had the foresight to yeah. mm-hmm. see the promise of yeah, this industry. I, I think, yeah, well, and, and just the fact that we were down there not asking for money. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of fledgling industries, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but, right. but uh, people are, they're accustomed to people testifying, you know, give us this money and we'll create these jobs. And we said, take away some of these restrictions that go back to prohibition era that didn't right. make any sense, and we'll create the jobs on our own, and, and we did. Well, definitely luck, definitely right place, right time, but yeah. also hard work. I mean, it, yes, it's fun. Yes, it was a hobby that became your life's passion, but there mm-hmm. was a lot of hard work in there as there well. Was, there was. Thank you. Yeah, yeah there was. <laughs> I won't deny that. There was. I, I, I was very fortunate to have a very supportive wife that accepted the fact that she watched her dad be an entrepreneur. And so here, Rob and I work in, you know, 16-hour days, seven days a week, you know, mm-hmm. and, and uh, no complaints, you know. It's like... Uh, she recognized that we were doing, and she was supportive the whole way, but right. we were doing what it took to. To make it, to make a go of it. <laughs> to not go out of business. <laughs> <laughs> we, we put every money, every penny that we had, which was not very much, plus some family pennies in it, that, which was also not very much, but it was like, we didn't have plan B. <laughs> right, right. It had to go. It had to go. It well, had to, yeah. I'm glad it did. And Me too. <laughs> I'm glad you guys made it into the studio today. Thank you. Yeah, Thank thanks. you so much. This is fun being here. Thank you for joining me for my conversation with Kurt and Rob Widmer. If you've missed any of the previous podcasts, you can find them at our website at kink.fm. 
Be sure to like and subscribe to the Portland 50 podcast wherever you're listening. The Portland 50 is a podcast series celebrating Kink's 50th anniversary, and it's about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950.